0: Welcome to Brains, a podcast exploring the inner workings of our brains and how film and television portray them. Hosted by me, writer-director Heather Taylor.
1: And by me, film and television editor Sarah Taylor. Before we begin, we want to acknowledge that the lands from which we recorded this podcast, and from where you are listening, are part of territories that have long served as a gathering place of diverse Indigenous peoples. And we are thankful, as guests on this land, to be able to live, work, and gather here together. We continue to learn about the history that came before us, and we encourage you to do the same.
0: We had the pleasure of interviewing fellow RespectAbility alum Michael J. Doherty about spina bifida and hydrocephalus and discuss disability representation in Guillermo del Toro films such as The Devil's Backbone and The Shape of Water. Michael is a film person, screenwriter, SAS, occasional actor, and advocate living and working in Hollywood. He's also the co founder of the Real Abilities Film Festival Los Angeles, entering its sixth year, which presents films and discussions by and about the disability community.
1: A quick reminder to our listeners that this interview should not be taken as medical advice, as it is for informational purposes only. Because everybody's brain is different, please consult your healthcare professional if you have any questions. And now, Michael.
0: <laughs> Hello, Michael, and welcome to Brains.
2: Hi, how are you?
0: We're doing good. We're doing, we're doing good. good. Doing good. <laughs> happy to be here. We're happy to have you. Yes, I'm so glad to have you. Now, to start off, we're going to ask the uh, the largest question in the world. Um, just tell tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Sure. Um, well, I was born with a condition called spina bifida and another condition called hydrocephalus. Uh, I'm from New York. Uh, originally, and fell in love with the movies when I was about three, which is an actual memory. And went to NYU Film School, which was uh, an experience I hated.
0: <laughs> oh no!
2: Yeah, it, was, it was awful. I've
0: heard I've heard questionable things. Yes.
2: Yeah, I don't recommend film school for anybody because there are, you know, film students there. Biggest um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, problem with it.
1: <laughs> oh, I love it
2: but i recovered from that and then about 10 years later well 8 years later i went to uh the national university of ireland in galway and got a masters in screenwriting nice i needed an adventure because i had been very sick uh on and off through my 20s um and was finally better and then i was like i need i need to do something and i and i thought well, why not go to ireland because that's where all my people are from and My parents were encouraging the screenwriting masters because you could ultimately teach with that and because they would always say things like, you know, if you want to win the Oscar, you know, you should be, that's fine, but do something in the meantime, but (laughs) jokes on them because I don't care about that. So, Mm. um, but yeah, so I never actually ended up teaching, but what it did do is it, it, it landed me in LA because I was one of the top students in my class. And they gave me a scholarship to take a course at UCLA the summer after I graduated. And there I found out about the Writers Guild and what was at the time called Writers with Disabilities, a committee in the diversity department, and got heavily involved with them for the better part of 12 years. And they, ex- they accepted my master's thesis screenplay, which was a thrill because it was crazy. And I just started working sort of on the ground Uh, In movies, I call myself a film person because I don't. It's not just about making them. You know, it's writing, it's directing, it's producing, it's editing. It's it's every aspect of it I'm completely obsessed with. But it's also the history of it, and it's advocating for it. Like for example, I I'm the co-founder of the Real Abilities Film Festival here in L.A. I'm not no longer associated with it, but I helped start it, and that's a disability centric film festival uh, in which, over three days, movies about and by those with disabilities get, get shown. And we've, it's been a pretty, pretty successful little venture. So, and now we're in the middle of a writer strike and I don't know what to do with myself.
1: Oh, this is why you're here. You can yes. talk to us. Thank you for, now
0: you have some time. Thank you so much. <laughs> I about, love the idea of film person. I'm going to start yeah. using that. That's really great. I like I'm going to go back to the very first thing you said, that you have a memory of loving film and television mm-hmm. from the age of three. Yes. What was that memory of?
2: So my earliest childhood memory was when my mother took me to see ET when I was three. And the reason that they say you can remember back that far is if, is if pain were involved. And in my case, I was recovering from brain surgery. And so my head was sutured and I had these uncomfortable bandages and it was just painful and itchy. And so I guess my mom wanted to take me uh, to give me a break, but it also to give herself a break. And I don't really remember much except the one thing I do know is that when the ship comes down and in the beginning when the ET gets lost uh, and all those brilliant lights are shining through all those Northern California evergreens, I went from feeling pain to not feeling pain in an instant. And my mother later confirmed that I was being very squirmy that day. And about partway through the movie, she looked over and saw me just sitting there very, very quietly. Uh, sort of en- engrossed in in the whole thing. And what I sort of took from that is that, the, for my life at least, there's this connection between the experience of art, particularly movies in my case, and the relief of pain. Mm. And that's something that I've sort of carried both sort of artistically and politically throughout my entire life. And I mean, wearing your horror heels t-shirt today and part of that ethos for me is that to experience terrible things on screen is actually therapeutic and it's healthy because we're, it allows us to sort of deal with it and reconcile it in in one form or a way like psychologically in our own lives so that's was very important to me but i i really did carry that from 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 a child all the way until i started to really to develop my own voice as a, as a film person but those who knew my work when I first started back around the film school days would lovingly accuse me of trying to to rewrite ET in my own image. I mean, that's how much of an effect it had, is that the narrative of of magic coming into someone's life that that is that is sad and supposedly broken, and and dealing with that in some way has been like that's been the narrative.
0: Amazing. You know, just for some the people who are listening, can you talk about what is spina bifida and how is hydrocephalus related to
2: it? Sure. So spina bifida is the second most widely recurring neurological disorder, at least in the United States. I believe CP, cerebral palsy, is the first. Spina bifida is the second. And what happens is that in utero, the spinal cord doesn't form and close properly. There's a, there's what's called a neural tube ar- around that's supposed to protect those nerves. And um, because of a lack of folic acid on the part of my mom when she was pregnant with me, led to this not forming properly. And what happens is, is that the, the the biggest thing is paralysis of some form happens a, as a result of this. Now, there are three different types of spina bifida. There's myelomengiocele, there's mengiocele, and there's occulta. Milo is the most severe, which is what I have. I am only paralyzed from the knees down, though, because it was on, I think, the lumbar, L2 lumbar. So really far enough down on the spine where it only affected a part of it. Whereas um, if you had it closer to your neck, you get like there, we talked about um, in prep for this about the, the, the actor who was in that movie, Shallow how the Farrelly Brothers movie, who gentleman, his name's Reen, and he he walks on his knuckles. He, he has a form where it was higher up. So it stooped him over in, in a way. And I don't. Have that, but I do have the most um, severe kind. And what happens with an infant or baby that's born with spina bifida is, is, you you get what's called a Chiari malformation, where the brain is ends up being larger than the skull, and so it's trying to push its way out. And hydrocephalus is normally part of that, where you have these ventricles in the brain which are filled with uh, cerebral fluid, and and an average person, that drains out to the rest of the body and the and the the brain remains the, the size that it's meant to be. but with with hydrocephalus, it it swells. They, I think the the sort of crude term is they call water on the brain. And so pressure starts to build up, and how that affected me. Um, certainly was, I, I suffered what was called optical nerve atrophy where my optical nerve, some of my optical nerves were actually crushed, which screwed up my vision to uh, one degree or another, um, which was sort of fun Then then I got the idea in my head, oh, I'm going to go make movies now. <laughs> um, but you know, I love, I love a challenge. I don't back down easily from them. So <laughs> that was pretty much how I ended up. And then like, I, I had it and they thought that maybe they could reverse it with physical therapy because it wasn't really, I mean, it was well known. I mean, the first case was like back in like the 1400s, I think, but it was still being decided about whether to let babies like I was live. And back in the seventies, the eighties, that's when the idea of bioethics really came into play about what to do with someone who has a severe disability. And my parents were very stalwart in that. I said, no, nope, I'm going to let them let him, let him go. And they, they, they tried to reverse it through physical therapy. It didn't work. And if I can tell you another memory that sort of spells a lot of this out is that when I was doing that physical therapy, I was probably like a year and a half, two years old trying to walk. And my mother said that I was, making my way along the hallway in a in a rehab center in New York. And I fell and started crying and the therapist went to pick me up and my mother held her back and said, no, Mickey, come on, come on, get up. It's okay. You're going to be fine. And a few seconds later, I calmed down, got back on my feet and started back down the hallway again. And the, that was that's been sort of their attitude, and I honestly think that the reason I'm here right now talking to you is because of that. Because they they pushed independence over over you know just sitting in your tears and
0: that made me tear. Oh, that makes me cry. Yeah, <laughs> I'll sit
1: in my tears. That's beautiful. Your parents are wonderful. Well, let's talk about movies. We us film people. <laughs> you recommend The Devil's Backbone as something that represent that has a representation of spina bifida how do you think this representation has impacted the way people think of spina bifida
2: this was difficult but i still think that it's like kind of worth talking about is that i'm not actually sure that there has been a full-fledged full-blooded dynamic complex view of this condition and characters dealing with it I mean, you have something like Shallow Hell, which is inclusive, and it shows that a person can be in the world and having a good time and all that. And, and I I love the Farrelly's um, for, for, for being that forward-thinking. I mean, they really are some of the great disability advocates in this town. But then I thought about The, the, the Devil's Backbone, because it actually does directly reference it. And what was Interesting to me about that is that the reference was in a movie that wasn't maudlin, wasn't cute, and had a very serious point to make. And so, while I don't, I won't defend it on the grounds of it being a proper representation because, like I said, there hasn't really been one. What was so powerful to me was. You know, you have the scene where the doctor is talking to the main kid and saying that, you know, this is a, this was a place where they used to send these patients, these little kids with, with spina bifida, and we're in this orphanage, like far out in the desert. And I remember thinking, oh, so I wasn't isolated as as a child because my parents made the effort to do that, but they had to make that effort. Because the, the sort of social standard, particularly throughout the, the early 20th century in any part of the world, was if you were born different, you need to be hidden away. And the thing that I have both appreciated and sort of and also questioned about Guillermo del Toro and his work is that he really does want to hold the other up. But that has gotten complicated for me over the years. But I I still think with this movie, um, with Devil's Backbone, that he is pointing out something that is terribly true. As recent as 2014, when I I went to Russia to write about the Paralympics in Sochi, which was the first time that they had happened there, and I ended up talking to a number of people, including doctors, and they told me that. They've had so much disability denial in that country that if a person had been born at the time I was born, which is 1979, I would have been taken from my my birth mother and either sent to a, a like-minded orphanage or institution like in Siberia, or or sent to be adopted in in, in a, another foreign country. So this is not this is not a medieval practice. This is something that we're still sort of contending with today. And it, it it requires that people use their their voices to sort of speak up. And I always think that art is the best way to do that because, like I said, I went to go see that movie because I like horror movies and I like ghosts and, and you know monsters and things like that. And I, I, I like Guillermo del Toro. And then I was really floored by, like, they actually said the word spina bifida. I was like, what what is this?
0: Yeah, I, I really, it was interesting too, because it was showing some of the like superstitions around disability as well. This idea that they're literally creating what they called limbo water because people thought it would heal them to have, it was basically, I'll say like babies with spina bifida in jars. And it was interesting because there was this idea of like, he's, a he's like, I'm a man of science, but Spain is full of superstition. It was a very fearful time and that, you know, otherness is coming into play, but he's like, there's a scientific reason for this, but I'm going to make money off of it. To fulfill the superstition of others, so it was just such an interesting conversation. Even in it, when they did talk about it, because it's not the whole film is named "The Devil's Backbone," which is a name given to spina bifida was a devil's backbone, and so the whole film is about spina bifida, but told in different, probably different ways, and not necessarily showing it. Like as you were, you know, saying before that there's something that he was talking about of this like limbo ness and this otherness, like you were saying that a lot of his films
2: talk about. Well, just the idea of the ghost. I mean, it's it's the incomplete story, like the incomplete spine. And I have sort of questions when anybody sort of uses disability as a kind of metaphor or a symbol and not as like a real experience.
0: Yes. But I think
2: he's actually like that was correct. Like that struck me as like, oh, OK, that, that made sense.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think that there is maybe off the back of that. Obviously, we haven't seen a lot of, when we talked, you said there was two Two. things. (laughs) There's two things. And one is like, essentially, not a living, breathing person that can represent spina bifida in Del Toro's Mm -hmm. film. And then you have the one character in Shaol Howell. But, you know, what are some common stigmas that you you think that you know of um, spina bifida? And like, how would you like to see it represented in TV and film or in media?
2: Well, I think the problem is, is that we're all seen as sad bastards that can't do anything. Mm. I mean, the sad bastard thing that that follows every <laughs> single person with a disability around. Yeah. It. I mean, they think it's just a completely miserable experience. And look, I'm having brain surgery next week. So it's not as though I'm like, hooray for that. But we, we do sort of overcome these things and, and get through it as people. It's just what we do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I I think that that's a problem. I mm-hmm. think what's interesting about Del Toro is that he and I really believe this about him is that he genuinely thinks that what is what would be deemed monstrous by by the mainstream is genuinely beautiful mm-hmm. to him. Mm-hmm. Where I part company with him. Is he hasn't figured out a way to bring that beauty into the rest of the world. It tends to stay in its own world mm-hmm. apart from everybody else, yeah, like an orphanage or like the ending of shape of water is literally making that statement. I think that that's dangerous i think I think he needs to sort of grow and 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 find a way to reconcile the monster with everyday life. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. This idea of like um, the way he looks at me, he doesn't know what I lack or how I'm incomplete. And uh-huh. just those words in themselves are indicating that because you are disabled, that you are incomplete or that you are lacking, which yeah. are both inaccurate. Yeah.
2: Yes. And, and the thing is, I I can understand that point of view because I'm sure. I mean, like as a as an 11 or 12 year old, where I went through surgeries every single year and then was bullied in between, so I didn't have a, a, a fantastic childhood. There was a lot of reasons for me to hate having spina bifida. But first of all, you you grow and you learn and 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 you 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 come to grips with with things and you you find what's good about yourself and the world and and then you get on with it. But it's a problem for me when art, in particular, which is something that we we implicitly learn from um, yeah. as as a planet about how to behave without really being given you know a, a, a lesson because I would not want that at all. Yeah. But if you don't if you don't have that experience yourself, mm-hmm. saying that this character that you wrote is incomplete is then very. Dangerous. I
0: yeah, totally. I, I read this really amazing article by Anna Wall on um, cripplemedia.com. And she said it's not about what you can't do, but how non disabled people react to inability that makes them feel like an outsider. So it's more believable for a woman with disability to fall in love <laughs> with a fish man than to fall in love with an able-bodied man. It's like, we need society to be accepting of our disabilities that so those disabilities can melt away and become as unimportant to the outside world as it
2: is to us. Exactly. And ever since that movie won Best Picture, which on the one hand, from an artistic standpoint, I'm glad that a, a movie about a woman fucking a fish <laughs> won <laughs> a mainstream award. Like, yes, that's, that's cool to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, but i I think if he had done one more rewrite in which yeah. he considered that making the Sally Hawkins character just a person who could talk mm. who all, then falls in love with the fish, mm-hmm. yeah, and that was the end of the story, then he would have nailed it. Then it would have been probably my favorite movie of all time, but he still had this thing where where no, no, we have to make sure that they're together, but apart, and but I was like, you know. Anyone going into that movie with a disability would understand that we're supposed to be the fish. Like that's that's very clear. It doesn't need to be Mm -hmm. underlined. But he doubled down on it, and Mm -hmm. the whole enterprise for me kind of fell apart as a result.
0: Yeah, I know someone who had epilepsy because of Scarlet Fever, and so was sent to a school like a separate school. So everyone was separate. This idea of separateness, so that you are being isolated. No one is meeting anyone with disabilities. And then therefore you're creating this like world where you're expecting no intersection. And, but we all live in the world and we all should be intersecting and living together. And there shouldn't be that separation isolation. And then like you're saying, we're seeing in films that only you can find love and only be together if you're isolated.
2: And with someone who's just like you, as opposed to just just somebody.
0: I want to ask you, you
1: said that there's this one um, quote that, that you really believe in it. And it's, I'm going to read the quote. If we're all going over the edge, and we are, shouldn't we laugh on the way down? How does this quote relate to your day-to-day life?
2: Well, I'm the one who said it. So I have to take responsibility. What oh, is so your quote? That That is, that's what I said.
0: That's pretty awesome. Well, that's even better.
1: Okay. Why did you say that? I love it. That's great.
2: Well, I was just on a panel at Respectability a week ago, not a week, a few days ago, talking about writing. And the whole notion of hope came up with my co-panelists and I immediately sort of swooped in and was like, no kind of screw hope, blah, blah, blah. And my, my reason for saying that, and this is tied to the quote is that I I think it's all going to end badly. And we have intermittent moments of, 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 joy and light along our lives, but a whole hell of a lot of difficulty. And I don't necessarily see the point in wishing that that something in the future is going to make things better we have to deal with right now and it also comes from the fact that that St- samuel beckett is my favorite writer of all time and waiting for godot is my favorite piece of writing it's the it's the thing that means the most to me in the world and the whole thing about that play is about these two guys that are 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 facing the everyday drudgery of, of the march toward oblivion, but they survive it because they have one another. I think that's sort of the untapped sort of message uh, of, of, of that mm-hmm. piece. And so, yeah, I, I do think that we're, we're, we're going over a cliff. It's inevitable. It, there's, but there's value in screaming against the silence. There's value in in laughing it up. There's value in taking as much meaning out of a meaningless world as you can, just to thumb your nose at that universe <laughs> and say, oh, "I'm going to do what I want to do."
0: Yeah. <laughs> yes.
2: And I, and for particularly for people with disabilities who have to sort of like carry their pain around and their experience around on their bodies, which other people are automatically going to judge as terrible. You might as well find the way to, to repurpose that experience to make it fuller and, and more dynamic. I don't mean to like deny that you're in pain, quite the opposite. I'm saying that we have to find a way to, to mix the, 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 the sweet and the sour as, as Billy Wilder yeah. would say. <laughs> so that's where that comes from.
0: I love it. I think Sarah is um, probably one of the most positive people, but it's not positivity to erase things. It's like, it's about finding joy where you can find joy or finding that idea of like, you know, let's carry on together in the best way we can. And that's why I really like that quote. Cause I pulled it out and I was like, yeah, I want to talk about that. Cause I just, I think um, sometimes you can get caught up in the pain of the world, not even your, like your own pain, but also the pain elsewhere. Someone asked me, are you a Are you an activist? And I couldn't think of the word. I said, I just want people to be curious. I just want to have people understand everyone's experience a little bit better. Maybe create empathy, but mostly just like just understand that we're all in this. We're all in this together in some capacity. (laughs) We're in this together. Yeah. So in thinking differently and, you know, showing work that we may not get to see, you did mention earlier that you co-founded Real Abilities Film Festival in Los Angeles. In your opinion, what has its impact been?
2: Well, for one thing, it proved that the community is much larger than certainly the, the media will, will portray. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, in, in, at least in, in L.A., and I know every single one of them, But that are hungry to have these types of stories be told and are not going to, you know, go gently into that good night, uh, you know, and not having had it accomplished. And my whole thing about starting it apart from I just like a challenge because they – I had, my mom had sent me an, uh, an NPR interview with one of the main people who started the whole organization back in New York. And it came up like, why aren't you doing this in, in Hollywood, which is, you know, it's the the movie capital of the world. And he said, well, it had something to do with real estate. And I naively was like, well, you know, there's about 160 film festivals around, around the year. Um, Mm-hmm. At any given moment in L.A., this should not be that difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, it was incredibly difficult because <laughs> access was actually
1: yes. the biggest
2: thing. It was like, where can we yeah. – because I was I was like, you know, we're showing this in a movie theater. We're not going yeah. to some library and setting up folding chairs. Like, we're going – I'm we're, I'm taking this to a movie theater. That's, that's where the temple is. That's where we're doing this.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: it was impossible to find a place where – in a, in a in a in a decent part of town where everybody could get to that had you know seats that we could remove and for the the wheelchairs and things like that and it was a nightmare trying to figure it out and and I it went on for like 3 years trying to figure it out and then we finally figured well no we're just going to sort of ask them to do it and make sure that it gets done and we had we had the backing of the city of the department of disability here in la and that's how we were able to get it get it done and we do it's a three day festival so it's relatively small but it was manageable so we had people that were coming for the entire weekend and and watching everything and i ran the majority of the the q a's more by necessity than anything else But for example, like we, we when COVID hit, we had to regroup, and so we did a a virtual version of it where you could watch the movies through a website and then come on to Zoom and 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 have the, the discussions that that way. And it was the greatest honor of my life that in 2020 we did a 30th anniversary screening of Edward Scissorhands, which is another one of my favorites and a formative. Experience and I got to interview Caroline Thompson, who wrote it. What? Um, and you can you can get that interview on on YouTube if if you so desire. But that was really why I, why I wanted to do it, sort of like from like a personal sort of like movie. <laughs> it's like I want to do a, an anniversary screening of of Ever hands and I want to talk to this woman and get to the bottom of it. And and I got to. So that's
0: absolutely amazing. If you could talk to Del Toro tomorrow, because. <laughs> He's the man I think we need to talk to. How would you like him to represent disability on screen in a different way?
2: First of all, he needs to hire a writer because he tends to co-write a lot of these movies. And if he wants to explore that, that's, that's fine. I'm all for that. But he should get somebody that actually has the experience because I, I think it'll only make the movies better um and it'll it'll make this love of m- monsters and discomfort that much more profound if he gets more people around him that really on on a, on a granular level understand what that feels like and i'm sure he has his own version of that but i i i i would say that i would also say that if we can we have the sort of technology to manipulate faces he should go back He should have Sally Hawkins reloop all all the lines that she signed and change her mouth to move because you can do that and have her speak. And then I'll fall back in love. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Redo. But that's what I would encourage for, for any creator is that I I don't, I don't believe in the idea that, that I have Spina Bifida. So I'm the only person that can make the Spina Bifida movie. I think that's kind of silly and it's limiting. Um, but I do think collaboration is of the utmost importance, and and they say you know n- n- nothing about us without us. I do believe that. Me too. But I, I don't want to start a fight with the able-bodied world. Able-bodied, by the way, is a, is a phrase I can hate. I, I just oh, I hate that this, too. It creates this binary where I'm suddenly broken and different from everybody. I, I just can't. Ugh.
0: I also don't like neurodivergent as a term. That's thrown in, like, I'm thrown in that bucket, but also, like, what am I then? Yeah, we've somehow, this is a phrasing that's happened, but I don't think that's the right phrasing.
2: And it rings like somebody else made that decision and not the people that they're actually talking about.
0: How do you think we should change language around that? I wonder.
2: Well, I, this is an interesting thing because I don't even like disability or disabled or anything like that necessarily. And what I always say to people is, I was born. It's spina bifida and hydrocephalus, those are two inescapable scientific facts. Mm-hmm. And I will take all the time out of my spina bifida day in order <laughs> to talk to you about this particular condition. I will answer any question you have.
0: Yeah.
2: All the rest, I think, is just rumor and conjecture about what I am and I'm not capable of doing. And it varies from person to person, and those people should be able to, to define who they are. Like it, it the whole idea of there being like a disability movement, a disability pride, really scares me because it's people trying to group themselves together, and they're doing it to be powerful. But it's like, no, I I want to just be who I, I'm gonna be. And I would like to speak to you because you are neurodivergent. I want to understand that experience and you're wearing glasses and I would like to know about your eyesight. And, and so that sort of thing. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I I think
2: that would be a healthier, more meaningful discussion.
0: Yeah. It's interesting because I have someone I'm close to in my life who doesn't talk about the disability in their family. doesn't talk about disability openly. I have, and especially Since attending Respectability, I'll say, and since like having to step forward, and I feel like disability becomes a bad word for people or a word that makes you seem, oh, well, you're not capable then. I've been told that to my face. (laughs) Oh, then you can't be capable. And I want to demonstrate the variety of who we are as, I guess, a group of people, but also that it's not a group. When you meet someone, you meet someone. That's it. And I feel like by opening up and being forward about that, the idea of like, there are a lot of us, and we just don't feel safe necessarily telling you. If we have invisible disabilities, like having something where I, I've told someone, I have a neurodevelopmental disorder, and that's ADHD. And being told, oh, don't tell people that it's neuro, you're neurodivergent, it's a superpower. And I was like, are you kidding me? Yeah, no, stop saying those, stop, 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 stop. I'm like, exactly. I was born with a different brain. It is totally, It's that's the way that I see the world. It's the way that exists in the world. And the world was not made for me, and so therefore, if you, if we can create better environments with universal access, then we're going to create a world that is available for everyone. Why not tell people like, stop being biased and stop being ableist, and how about you just create a better world for all of us and show us on screen and put us in the rooms and put us on the cruise?
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Preach! <laughs> I have lots of thoughts. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs>
1: well, I'm going to ask. What do you want people to take away when they're thinking about Spina Bifida after listening to
2: this? That I'm super hot.
1: I can corroborate that <laughs> statement.
2: Let, let me let me quickly back away from that. Um, Don't back away. <laughs> what, wait? What was the question? What do I want people to take away from Spina Bifida? Everybody's got a thing. Yes. Everybody's yes. got a thing, and I think all of those things are are worth understanding and reconciling to one degree or another. And we get nowhere by not talking about it. We get nowhere by demanding that people look at it in a certain way when it simply isn't true. Like you you were saying about about how you feel about neurodivergence, I'm having brain surgery next week. There's likely going to take a hacksaw out of my skull and I'm not going to be able to get out of bed. I want, I want the room in order to complain about that, that this mm. kind of yeah. sucks. Yeah. Yeah. But I also want to make abundantly clear that it is not the entire experience. And human beings are resilient. It's what we're famous for. And people with disabilities are awesome at adapting. If you want to call that a superpower, that'll allow. Because we have figured yeah. out a way to put up with other people's garbage for so long when it's just not it's not acceptable at this point. There's no reason why we don't have ramps to everywhere because you know everyone can use those.
0: Yeah. Yes. Yes.
2: Yes. Yes. There's no excuse. And so I, I would say it's it's about listening and really sitting down and looking one another in the eye and and, and talking about this. And just like you know, the example always comes up about like the, the little kids that would stare at me, which, thank God for the pandemic, and I never had to leave the house, so I don't have to deal with that. But typically, that's what happens. I, I leave the house, and people are, are staring, or they want to touch me, or they want to say things. I mean, talk about a Me Too situation. The disability community has been Me Tooed like every single day since we were children, in, in many ways. Because of of the attitudes that people have, but you have this thing with children where if they're curious about something, they'll ask their question and then they get over it because they're children. <laughs> it's not a thing anymore. But the more that the parents steal them away and say, "Don't look at that," or "or don't talk to him," or "you know you're being rude," or whatever, um, it's that is that is incredibly damaging, and it makes my experience, because I remain self-conscious, um, harder to, to deal with. So it's not the spina bifida, it's the social stigma around it. That's actually the thing that's, that's getting to me. And I, I, I practiced transcendental meditation and got to a certain point where self-consciousness kind of left me and I was able to leave the house. And I was actually shocked, shocked when I realized that that was happening. Because I was mm-hmm. so used to the idea of like, okay, now you gotta go put the face on, cause mm. your your audience is is awaiting you. And I I'm 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 glad that I reconciled that in myself. And mm. I am living a much happier, more peaceful life at this point. But everybody else needs to sort of get on board.
1: I have a colleague who is a wheelchair user, and I remember him once saying that when, you know, kids are staring. And parents are like, shh. He's like, just get your kid to ask the question. So I remembered that. And then I could see him from afar at a festival we were at. And my daughter was with me. And she's like, oh, what happened to that guy? I was like, well, let's go talk to him. She asked her questions and that was it. And now she calls, now that's her friend, Daniel. So I think it's very simple. People who don't have the same experiences, you just like let your shit go out of the way for a second. And just also be curious. It's just, it makes me angry.
0: Yeah. Or I was at an event and... There was a gentleman there with CP and he was a wheelchair user and I, he is fucking hilarious and raunchy and we <laughs> had like the best conversation. But I could see people not coming over. I noticed that. I'm like, just come over and have a conversation. We had like the best time. I'm like, this was the best day that I had. It was very apparent, the separation in the room for no particular reason. And I felt like there was people being unsure of like, what to say, and I think because there is that stigma, and there's this lack of sometimes integrated community that people feel unable to have conversation because they're like, well, "What if I don't know what to say? What if I don't say the right things?" Instead of just saying, "Hey, I'm Heather, nice to meet you." That's it. That's what you say. That's it, and then you go from there.
2: Well, it's like your 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 fellow countryman Wayne Gretzky would say, you know, you you miss a hundred percent of the shots <laughs> you do not take. Yes.
0: Yes, I. Yes, thank not you for only, incorporating. Not only our countryman, but an oiler, Euler, a former oiler. Our city, our city. If you did not know that, we are both from Edmonton, Alberta.
2: That's like way up, isn't it? That's like that's like Neil Young country, isn't it?
0: Well, we are the most, the northernmost capital city. That's a province because we have territories. Our nor- more north, so
2: but, it's yeah. very cold all the time.
0: No, it's very hot right
1: now. But yes, it can be cold in the winter.
2: Wow, I did not think that the conversation about Spine Bifida would move to meteorology, but here we are.
0: The places we go. The places we go. go. (laughs) There's probably lots we haven't talked about, but is there anything, one last thing that you'd like to say that you may not have talked about that you would like to talk about that you will be upset if you later leave this recording and think, why didn't I say that?
2: There's always going to, I mean, I'm Irish, like regret is like a thing I do. <laughs> um but our family's Roman I, I feel like we we're
0: it. really um
2: That's Irish Catholic. Michael. Yeah, it's 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 kind of yeah. it's kind of par for the course, you know. They hand you your regret card when you're born. Um <laughs> well, well, I, we did we didn't really talk about like actual like making movies and things like that. And I what I would say is create universal design for sets. It's a given. You're hauling around Heavy equipment. There should be ramps and pathways set out, and and bathrooms that everybody can use. This is this is not it's not rocket science. It's it's not even elementary school science. Like it's like it's just so easy to, to like implement. But also, I I I want to see the stories like the Devil's Backbone, but by a person with a disability that really wants to confront how he or she could have been the person in that jar. Mm. And, and what, what the, the ghost of that fetus might be thinking. Because, you know, for every sh- shape of water, and I'm going to fire a shot and forgive me for this, but we, we get a, you get a coda, which I think is a noble attempt. But there's a part of me that thinks, <clears throat> well, they're still, they're still going for the touchy-feely thing. And I think there's a bit too much of that around disability, so that's why I love horror movies so much. And I'm, I'm sort of obsessed with how disability links all the way back to the the Thomas Edison version of Frankenstein, which is the first one of the first silent films. I mean, disability and horror have always been there together, and I'd like to know why. What's the fascination there, and and can we make meaning out of that? And which I think we can, and I, and I do. I mean, all of my writing has people with disabilities just covered in gore, um, <laughs> because that's that's just my my bread and butter. And actually, I had a, I we had a scene presentation a while back, and the scene I presented was from my blacklist disability list script, which involves homicidal special needs kids, and it's a scene where where these two are basically playing with a severed head and she came up to me this person came up to me at, at afterwards and she's like why why are you doing this like why are you representing people in this way it's just, it's it's gross and my first response was well hey you show me a better world and i will go point the 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 lens or the mirror that way i'm happy to do it but until such time i'm not i'm not abiding by that but it's also because like I said, love horror movies. I've been obsessed with that kind of stuff since I was a little kid. And just stepping aside from my that I was the guy who wrote it, I was like, "Holy cow!" I'm seeing a scene where a kid with spine bifida and an amputee are playing with a severed head, and they're being really mean and nasty. And and I'm like, "Yeah, I want to. I want to see stuff like that. I want to. I want to see how we can include things in ways that are." genuinely inclusive, but also have the capacity to make people uncomfortable to where we have to ask questions. Because that was the whole thing. It's like, where did these kids get to the point where they had to take off a person's head? That was the larger question out of all the sort of carnage that I was building up. So,
0: What is the name of your script?
2: It's called No One Is Looking. And it's about a kid in a wheelchair who's about to graduate college and go to film school, hopefully. And he kills a bully in a blackout, drunken rage and gets away with it because no one believes that a kid in a wheelchair would be capable of that. Mm. And he gets tasked with finding, and this is actually a second severed head, the severed head of, of, I have a thing with heads (laughs) um, and removing them. Um, He gets tasked with finding that bully's severed head as like the last piece of evidence that might get him caught. And then to throw in the wrench, uh, one of his childhood friends shows up and says, Hey, if we can get away with this, this means we can kill anybody we want and chaos. The adventure ensues. begins.
1: <laughs> well, uh, that movie needs to and be And it's made. a musical. Oh my goodness.
0: No, it's not. <laughs>
1: no, no, I'm but, that in. I'm gonna make everybody think it's a musical as well. Yeah. Oh, cut cut around the... The head. I don't know. That, <laughs> okay,
0: see. Sarah's gonna be now the composer of the musical. <laughs> don't you worry, we, we got you, uh, Michael. It's happening. We got you.
2: We, the movie's <laughs> being made. <Right. laughs> Where can people find you? I'm on social media. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram is Mike on Sen, as opposed to en Sen. And my the, the blacklist. I'm not sure uh, what the status is with the Writers Guild, but at, there was a time at which you could just go on and then look up that script or my name, and you, anybody could look at it if they wanted to. So,
0: thank you again for coming and joining us on Brains. Uh, we really appreciate all your time and your stories. Thank you.
2: Thank you, for, and sweet, sweet return of the Living Dead reference, by the way. The name of your podcast.
0: Yes, <laughs> yes, we. Yes, so. thank you, and thank you. You know, I'm glad you noticed that because that is exactly <laughs> what we were intending. Sometimes we say it that way. Yeah, we go okay. brains. <laughs>
2: yeah, <laughs> one of the great, great movie moments.
0: Yes, I was really nice to have Michael on the podcast i had first met him he came and spoke to the respectability lab i was in they had people come to speak and he came and spoke and it was just i think good to hear different people's perspectives and i was really happy that we got to have him join us to talk about so many things and i feel like we could have probably talked for so much longer but you know we only have a short time (laughs) this podcast uh but it's just yeah it's always a pleasure to uh to meet someone that you can talk to probably for a long time
1: yeah, it was the first time I chatted with him was when we re- interviewed him for the podcast. And I felt like he was already like a longtime friend. So I'm just sending out some well wishes to Michael because uh, he did have a f- surgery, as he mentioned in the mm-hmm. podcast. So we hope he's recovering well and maybe getting to watch some films as he's recovering. Because I know we know he enjoys that. So,
0: yes, I hope he is. Sarah, is there anything that, that you've been up to this last little while? Um,
1: well, I have a little shout out to my therapist for being amazing and encouraging all people to have a therapist. Um, I had a, an interesting incident at my child's Taekwondo class where a parent yelled at me and it really was like, what? And it totally caught me off guard and wasn't I I was just like stunned. And so I had gone through all these like scenarios and plans on what to do if I see her again. And I could sense that I was gonna spiral in this anxiety spiral, right? So luckily, I had an appointment with my therapist the next day. <laughs> it was very good timing. <laughs> that was very useful. Yes. I came to the appointment. And I said, hey, this happened. Um, this is what I think I should do. And my, my initial idea was that I needed to go in and like sit down with her and say, hey, I, I see that you were really hurt and I want to apologize for whatever you think I did to hurt you, uh, blah, blah, blah. And then my therapist said, but did you do what she said? And I said, no. So do you need to say sorry? I said, No. She's like, do you know why you want to say sorry? I said, well, I don't want her to not like me, which is Mm -hmm. a core safety behavior. This is something I'm learning about in generalized anxiety disorder, the like therapy I'm doing right now. And so it is one of my safety behaviors is to ensure that everybody around me is happy with who I am and (laughs) accepts me and loves me and thinks I'm amazing. And so having this woman just not like me because she thought I said something that I didn't say. I was going to take on all this responsibility to like fix the situation. And it was just brilliant that my therapist was like, well, you did nothing wrong. Therefore, you should not be apologizing. And this is a good moment for you to practice not doing your typical safety behavior, which is doing what you can to ensure other people accept and love you. My therapist then went on to say, have you had any sort of interactions with this person prior to that incident? And I said, I'd never seen them in my life, so no. So why are you wanting to fix a relationship that doesn't exist? Mm. Just really good questions that they had for me that used a lot of curiosity in their approach of talking to me. And just like I was able to really pinpoint right away where my anxiety started and where I could make a shift and not fall down that same very ingrained groove in my brain. <laughs> so it's going to be interesting going to Taiko Donex class and just going in like I always do and being the human I am and it, just accepting that somebody might not like me.
0: I read a really good post that I shared today about what masking is. And this person said that, you know, when you see my child, they're like a unique piece of origami. But when they're at home, they unfold all their the folds so they can be a, just a piece of paper. And that over time, those folds become creases and they become scars and that's what masking is and I was like oh my goodness (laughs) that is 100% correct
1: (laughs) yeah it was a really good um analogy for what masking is for somebody and Mm -hmm. like it gave me a different even just reading that quote gave me a perspective as well and I like teared up immediately and was like oh
0: my god Heather (laughs) I know I'm a people pleaser too, but when also when you're in a situation where you sometimes don't feel like you understand everything, you just want everyone to like you. And because if they like you, that means you fit in. And I've sometimes felt very like outside of a lot of people growing up, or I felt like very different. And so, in my difference, if I could be a chameleon and fit in, if I could fold my paper the right way. And then that meant people liked me, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily be myself.
1: It's interesting how there's all this overlap in, or again, maybe intersectionality between different brain stuff, like with my anxiety, you know, my, one of my, like I said, my core thing is like making sure I'm accepted and loved and da, 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 da. Maybe there's some sort of attachment issues there, whatever. But you know, that's the same thing for you, but it presents in a different way because your ADHD is connected with it. Where for me, it's like my yeah. anxiety is connected with it, but it still probably stems from the same thing.
0: <sighs> yeah. I think there's it's layers and layers and layers and layers. It doesn't matter where you got the gift from. It's just a gift that you will carry for yeah. the rest of your life <laughs> in some capacity, but that doesn't mean you have to. It doesn't mean that you have to hold on to it tight.
1: Exactly. And that's what, you know, therapy helps us learn, right? Like, okay, I don't need to go down that path for this specific situation, but also shows me like when I mentioned this, the story to my husband, he was like, well, that's weird. And then like, mm. because he doesn't have this anxiety, he wouldn't have, he, but he was, it was actually kind of lovely. Cause he, he said, are you okay? Like how, how can I mm. help you not think about this for the, rest of the week and then I said well I have a therapy appointment tomorrow and he was like great that sounds that's a that's really good and then was like I came out of my office at one point he's like did you have your appointment yet and I was like no I'll let you know and then I came back out another time and he's like I told him about my appointment and like I already felt like a huge lift right and so he gave me a high five he's like good job so doing the work is hard like breaking these pathways that have been like ingrained in our brains for our whole lives is really hard but something I'm proud of so this could be my awesome thing is that like my daughter was there with me and like I feel like it was highly inappropriate for this woman to speak to me the way she did but I I did handle myself in a very like positive I didn't get yelled back at her like I was a very calm person and I walked away and my daughter was like well what was that about and I was like I'm not sure actually and I like I reflected and I and I came home and I talked to my husband and I like I got emotional and And then I was open about how I was going to talk to my therapist and I feel like, and then I talked with my daughter afterwards about how like, oh, this is like how mom's going to deal with it. We're going to go into Taekwondo like any other day because I didn't do anything inappropriate or wrong. So it's going to be fine. Like, and I said, I might have to be a little more brave because my anxiety wants me to do something different. I'm going to be brave. Like I tell you to be brave when you're nervous about something. And then she was like, yeah, we can do it together, mommy. So I think being transparent with our with everybody in our lives is really important. Yeah,
0: I agree. Sometimes you have those moments where you're going through a difficult time. I was really stressed and I woke up at 4.30 in the morning and I couldn't go back to sleep. So I got up and did some stuff and then... My husband asked me why, and I explained, and then he did something for me to help me. Instead of me being like, "It's," I just couldn't sleep, I was like, actually, I was thinking about this, and I then I couldn't go back to sleep, so I just got up and did stuff, And because I had to get stuff done. And I think me not just being like, it's cool, I'm fine, but to say, hey, this is actually what's on my mind, it just allows your partner or your friends or people in your life that you love in some capacity or that are just part of your life, they can surprise you with their care. Mm-hmm. That if you don't tell them and you keep that inside and you it festers or you worry or you this is my burden to carry, as you kind of feel like that, it's that breaking of that cycle because we've had to carry burdens in some capacity and now we're letting those go. Mm-hmm. I want to say there's a, some people who've been uh, commenting on our podcast and leaving some reviews for us. Just thank you for those people who have done so. Um, if you like our show, please also Um, add a review and, or just message us and let us know what kind of things you'd like us to talk about because we're doing this for us and you. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Sorry. You first. I mean, you first and then us. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Anyways. So thank you for listening to today's episode of Brains. (laughs) Uh, brains is hosted and produced by heather and sarah taylor which is us and mixed and mastered by tony Bao. our theme song is by our little brother depish and our graphics were created by perpetual notion
1: if you like what you hear please please rate and review us and tell all your friends to tune in You can reach us on Instagram or Twitter at Brains Podcast, spelled B-R-A-A-A-I-N-S podcast. You can also go to our website at BrainsPodcast.com, where you can contact us, subscribe, and find out a little bit more about who we are and what we do. Until next time, I'm your host, Sarah.
0: And I'm your host, Heather. Bye. Bye. Bye!